everybody, and welcome back to the SimKit Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about vents, vent alarms, and I am joined by Dr. Andrew Phillips. Andrew is an ED and critical care physician. He is the founding medical director for his hospital's ECMO program. Nice work there. He's an associate medical director for the ICUs and is a staff physician for an ED uh, at an affiliate rural hospital well, as well. So sometime in the tertiary care ICUs as well as in the rural ED environment. He's also the founder and editor of chief and chief of EM Coach, a very popular uh, board review suite. So Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on SimKit. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Yeah. So Dr. Phillips, vent alarms and how to manage them. It's really an integral skill for the ED physician, but I'd say that we're probably not really all that good at it. So hypothetically, say you're a doc in a remote access hospital and all ICU patients have to be transferred out. You have to know you what you imagine. Yeah, yeah right. Me, <laughs> me as well. Me as well. Part of my work. I Yeah, I actually, no, I, don't, I don't work in the ICUs, but I work all the way from an academic center to a freestanding ER. So very poignant um, case scenario there, right? Uh, but if you're working in that environment, you have to know what you're doing when that thing starts beeping at you. But it's not just the rural community docs that have to know this. Say you work in the ivory tower, the academic medical center at the tertiary care hospital. It's conference day. The third year resident who is fresh off of medical ICU is not there to help you with your event. That clinician also has to know what they are doing. So Andrew, why is this skill so important and why are we seemingly so bad at it? Right. So, I mean, obviously this is a huge skill for us. And um, it's it's not just getting the breathing tube in, the ET tube in, right? Uh, but also managing it and all of the physiologic changes that come with that after we, we intubate somebody. So it is a big part of what we do in terms of managing that airway after intubation. And, you know, a lot of the alarms are tricky and a lot of the alarms, as we'll discuss, are not really that transparent about why they're alarming. Yep. And I, I think sometimes we we kind of, like you said, we high five ourselves, we move on we leave the RT to do these things, which is they're a fantastic resource, but the over-reliance on it may lead to some skill set decay or waning knowledge base as well, where we just kind of pass the buck off, you know? Yeah. And you know, that's, that's not the best way to go. We have the most physiologic knowledge and we're the uh, physician in charge of that patient. And so we should very much be front and center and addressing any of those issues because there is something wrong causing any of those alarms. It's something that needs to be addressed. Yeah, perfect. So that's my hope today is to kind of address the most common alarms. My hope is to kind of do some case scenarios with you. I will, you know, for the listeners, I'm going to feign a little lack of knowledge. I know some of this certainly not to the degree of Dr. Phillips, but I will I will play dumb for those uh, involved. And I'm going to have you uh, walk us through the situation. How's that sound? That sounds great. Fire away. Perfect. All right. So you're on shift. And you, uh, you intubate a patient for an acute polypharmacy ingestion as a suicide attempt overdose. They have a suppressed GCS. You, you, know, go, you high-five yourself in the mirror of the bathroom and say, man, I'm a good doc. I, I handled that airway great. You move on to the next patient. Nurse calls you 10 minutes later for vent alarms. You go in the room and you see a high respiratory rate alarm. Andrew, what is, what's going on here? You know, I, I set the respiratory rate at 18. Why is the machine saying that they're now breathing 30? Right. So the most important question to first address here is how long before shift change? <laughs> Good point. Yeah. <laughs> pass the buck. Pass the buck again. Just kidding. 
<laughs> so, you know, it's, it's really a misnomer and un, an unfortunate one as well to say that you're setting a respiratory rate. And, of course, that's what it says on the ventilator. It's not the respiratory rate that you're setting. Realistically, it's the minimum respiratory rate because patients in any of these modes are able to breathe above and beyond whatever that set rate is. Now I'm talking about for any kind of uh, setting in which there there is a set respiratory rate, right? I'm not talking about pressure support. I'm talking about like ACVC and things like that. So they can breathe above and beyond. What's really going on if there's a high respiratory rate is they have an acute propofol deficiency. And I say propofol specifically, you know, not dexmedetomidine, for example, because one of the the good things about dexmedetomidine, generally speaking, is that it does not uh, suppress your respiratory drive. But in this case, if they're breathing well above the ventilator and their breath stacking or if they have some sort of pathology that requires them to, to slow down, you have to get them to slow down their breathing, COPD would be another good example, then you've got to get them to stop breathing. And the way to do that is propofol or uh, one of the opioids, right? So give them some fentanyl, give them some morphine or Dilaudid. You've got to give something to stop that respiratory drive. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so we're going to try to slow them down. Propofol seems to be your preferred agent. Now, let's say, devil's advocate here, so let's say that this patient ends up having positive salicylates on their laboratory work or change the patient. It's a severe DKA. How do you manage the respiratory rate in that patient with a metabolic acidosis or another reason for that tachypnea? Absolutely. And this is a great example of why we should be heavily involved in addressing any of these vent alarms because it's up to us to understand the underlying pathophysiology of why that patient became intubated. If they're in DKA or they have a salicylate toxicity, that is a metabolic cause of their respiratory failure, right? Their lungs, generally speaking, are, are okay. We're not trying to make up for the lungs. We're making up for the respiratory drive that was required to compensate for their metabolic problem. And when it's a metabolic problem basically causing them to wear out, right, you have to match what they did previously. And the way to pay attention to that is with their minute ventilation. So especially when I'm talking to you know, some of our fellows up in the ICU trying to get them to understand how they're making these fine-tuning adjustments, when you're seeing your CO2 or you're trying to adjust and, and compensate for DKA or something that's, that's really severe like this, don't be looking at just the respiratory rate. Don't be looking at just the tidal volume. You have to look at the minute ventilation because that is what's going to drive down the CO2 that then compensates for their lack of bicarb and all the acidemic processes that are going on. So with a metabolic cause, you have to keep up. With a respiratory cause, you generally want to slow down and give their lungs a rest. They're not going to have to breathe as fast for a respiratory cause once you give them enough oxygen. They were breathing fast in order to oxygenate. It's not an oxygen problem when they have DKA. It's a ventilation problem, and they're getting tired. So pay attention to what the cause of respiratory failure is, and that is 100% your job, not RTs. That makes sense. And so... With that acute propofol deficiency, I love that term. If we're talking about pneumonia, COPD, <laughs> another reason, um, once we get that, you know, hypoxia addressed, we can we can drive their respiratory rate down by suppressing it. But you'd probably put yourself in a bad place if you were suppressing the drive in someone who has a metabolic acidosis. So keep up with it in that circumstance. Yeah, you're going to see that pH drop really fast if you're not careful. And remember, those are the patients who, if they already have a low pH, say 6.9, sometimes 6.8, you know, there's a debate about giving bicarb when you intubate, and that's a whole other conversation. But those are the patients who, right, if they're already 6.9, 
and you go make them go apneic for a moment while you're intubating, maybe you got to keep up because <laughs> you're going to find <laughs> that 6.9 and 6.7 really fast. Yes, the whole resuscitate before you intubate, that is an important process for sure. All right, so next patient. You move on to your very next patient and you intubate a polytrauma patient who has significant facial injuries. Eight minutes later now, you get a new event alarm. It states air leak. Andrew, what's going on here? Yeah, so we were discussing this uh, pre-production here, just going over cases we've, we've had and, and how frustrating it is to get that tube in and then to realize the tube's not working all that well. So the air leak is um, when you have a closed circuit. So this is in a secure airway, you know, an ET tube, where it is measuring, of course, the amount of air that comes back. And it gives you a sense of leak because it knows how much air went in, what the volume in was, and what the volume out was. And if it's not detecting the air coming back, then it's going to alarm that there is an air leak. Air is going somewhere other than back into the ventilator. And really, that's going around the ET tube somewhere. And it means that your cuff is not working. Maybe this person has a history of tracheomalacia. You need to move the location of the balloon. Or in this case, with significant facial injuries, and unfortunately probably got nicked by a tooth or an exposed bone on the way down. And so your cuff just uh, no longer will hold air. Okay. And you're going to see that alarm as an air leak specific alarm, or maybe a low tidal volume alarm or loss of peep. Is that how that might manifest? Yeah, exactly. So your tidal volume going in is going to be the same. You're going to end up losing PEEP because, you know, the vent has to have that balloon up in order to hold that air in the lungs. And, uh, you know, if you lose that balloon, you lose the ability to keep that air in the lungs. And so you're going to, to see that the PEEP is, is coming down. It's going to be set at a certain amount, but you're not actually going to achieve that PEEP. And you might see that alarm as well. So air leak alarm or losing of peep alarm, both need to take a look at your balloon, take a look at your tube location. Absolutely. All right. Okay. Okay. Next, next patient. We got a busy day here in our emergency department. Your next patient is I've a- never heard of that. <laughs> uh, your next patient is a severe asthma attack and they're losing mental status. You intubate them six minutes later. I don't know if you noticed, we went from 10 minutes later to 8 minutes later. It's getting faster and faster. These vent alarms are coming at us hot. Six minutes later, you get a vent alarm, high peak pressure. Andrew, what is happening and what do you do? Oh, the asthmatic. Boy, try not to intubate these people, right? Yes, um, yeah. A lot, a lot, a lot goes wrong with the asthmatic and the COPD or when they get intubated. And so let's let's talk about that. And it. Forgive me. It has to. We have to drive a little bit into the uh, the physiology side of things. So, so kind of scrape back in the med school days, and you know, there's a, an important difference between the peak pressure, and that's what's going to alarm the peak pressure, which is the highest pressure. It's a dynamic pressure. Any time during the course of breathing, this alarm uh, will go off if the pressure that's set is too high, and this could be any cause it could be my fat foot stepping on the you know extension of the the et tubing right going into the ventilator that can cause a high peak it can be any of that stuff the other pressure you need to worry about is the plateau pressure and uh, for those who aren't as familiar with this the plateau pressure is a static pressure and it's an inspiratory pause so during a breath you actually have the vent hold the breath and it will measure the pressure at that point which takes away all of the flow issues. 
So in an asthmatic, right, the bronchi are very inflamed. They're very small. The flow is causing a high pressure because those tubes are more narrow. So a gross way of thinking about this is that the peak pressure is usually something just along the tubes, right? Whereas the plateau pressure is what is being felt by the alveoli. So the peak pressure will go up, and then you have to ask yourself, is this a high peak pressure with a high plateau pressure, meaning something's wrong with the lung parenchyma or something with the alveoli itself, versus a high peak pressure and a normal plateau pressure, which is what happens consistently in asthma and to a similar degree in COPD, although usually a little less on the high part there. But it is very common, for example, in an asthmatic patient to have high peak pressures in the 80s, 90s, in someone who's in status asthmaticus, right, really, really bad asthma requiring intubation. But their plateau pressure, because their alveoli are fine, is going to be normal. Now, one thing I want to add to that, and we should circle back around this, at this point, with this asthmatic, and this is a whole other conversation, right? But with this asthmatic, that high peak pressure alarm is stopping your breath. And I think it's important enough to say that again, that when you have a high peak pressure alarm, this is often ignored by people, not just the physicians, but the, the nurses who are bedside, and even some RTs, the breath is actually being stopped. The tidal volume you set as the minimum tidal volume is not being delivered when there's a high peak pressure alarm. It's a safety mechanism because the vent thinks it's going to blow up the alveoli. So you're going to wind up with this patient, I guarantee you, not only having the high peak pressure alarm, but also the low minute ventilation alarm because they're not getting the breath. And you're about to go from someone who's just hypoxic to also uh, hypercapnic, and you're going to get into a hole that's really difficult to get out of. I know that's a lot of explanation I just gave for one simple question, but they all tie together. So high peak pressure, the first question you should be asking yourself is, is the plateau pressure high or is the plateau pressure normal? We should definitely recap that because it is a mouthful. Yeah, yeah, no, that's super important to go back over. And I mean, we could have a whole other conversation on intubating the asthmatic. You know, I've, I've been taught and I tell my residents, intubating asthma is uh, varying degrees of failure, right? We're, we're trying to do not yeah. that as best as possible. And that is kitchen sink, right? Your magnesium, your epinephrine, everything you can give that person to stave off intubation, you need to do. But sometimes, unfortunately, they need to be intubated. And so going over when you get these high peak pressure alarms, we're going to want to first ask ourselves, what is the plateau pressure? And that's going to help differentiate root cause just a little bit. In patients with the high peak normal plateau, which is common in asthma because of the bronchospasm and normal alveoli, um, that, that's a common scenario that we'll see. Other reasons, just kind of going over potential causes, you mentioned, you know, if you're stepping on the extension tubing, if the endotracheal tube is kinked at the mouth or the bite block, Maybe, I don't know, a, a mucus plug, would that be another reason? Or like if you got a bunch of gunk or blood stuck into the endotracheal tube, would that be another reason for a high peak normal plateau? Certainly, very much so. And not just the kink, I would add a very common one, yes, kinking at the bite block. But before you put the bite block on, them biting down on the tube and starting to wake up mm -hmm. can cause it. Really, one way to think about the high peak pressure and normal plateau is tubing some sort of tubing. It's bronchospasm, 
at the, the lung level. It is biting at the mouth level. It's someone stepping on the tube or the wheels rolling. And I, I say that and someone's probably thinking, gee, I'd never, you know, I'd feel it. I'd step on the tube. I have seen those wheels roll onto the extra long tubing, right? Like you have to run your circuit. I'm sure we've all been amazed at the stuff that can go wrong that you wouldn't think of until you see it. And this stuff absolutely happens. That makes sense. Yeah, you, you like to think we're above that, but we are certainly not. <laughs> uh, and then so the other type. Murphy's Law. <laughs> exactly. Well, it can. It will. Um, high peak, yep. high plateau. So then this is less of, you know, I, I think almost for the high peak normal plateau, someone taking a Kelly's and, and clamping something. It could be intrinsic to the lungs. It could be in the ET tube. It could be in the tubing. We went over that. In the high plateau circumstance, the lungs aren't really moving or opening properly in some capacity. That could be you took out one of the lungs. Maybe you're only working with the right because you main stem them. Um, and unfortunately, this, I guess, could happen in asthma if they breath stack and they pop a, a pneumothorax and start getting tension physiology. Um, these are reasons why it might be a high plateau, high peak. Is that correct? Yeah, I would agree with that. And uh, this is why I love your asthma example because to your point of breath stacking, we're now talking about high peak pressure and high plateau. We've gone into the decreased compliance. So so for a second, for the physiology nerds, the high peak pressure with a normal plateau is your increased resistance. The high peak with a high plateau is your decreased compliance. And asthma just fit both of those. Mm -hmm. And so you have to be careful in the beginning, this patient, as you first described six minutes after intubation, falls into the increased resistance problem it's just the asthma but you've got to keep watching that plateau pressure because if it starts to rise now you're thinking breath stacking right now they're auto peeping or they popped a pneumo so asthma can jump between these and uh, honestly if you're not familiar working with these patients and, and tubing them very often it is a good time to phone a friend yes yes exactly call on your resources work with your senior rt as well as your icu docs and so if you do start to get in that category, you know, uh, high peak, normal plateau, we're doing everything we can to get that albuterol in. If we're on an epidrip, that's probably a good idea. We're doing everything we can for the bronchospasm. If we start moving into the high peak, high plateau, that's the time where you might consider disconnecting the patient from the ventilator momentarily, putting some pressure on the chest to allow for a full exhalation, and maybe taking your ultrasound out and making sure you still have lung sliding. And that is an amazing feeling when you do that and it works. I mean, routinely, when I've had, I've had to actually set my phone alarm on one patient in particular, I'm thinking of every hour I was having to go in there. This is already admitted from the ED, so you wouldn't have to keep this up, but he was in the unit and I had to set my alarm for every hour to remind myself <laughs> to go into his room, disconnect the ventilator, press on his chest, and his map would immediately jump. Set map, not just systolic, the map would jump seven or eight points every hour. And at first, you know, staff was a little unnerved by this. And by the seventh or eighth time, it's like, hey, Dr. Phillips, welcome back. How you been? <laughs> Trying to push on that, that gentleman's um, and, chest. Yeah. Yes. And I, I look back and smile at this because everything went fine with him and he did great. But it was, you know, that's how bad it can get. Yeah, cer certainly. All right. So coming back around to that little bit of a nuanced point about um, the, the peak pressure, the alarm, and the truncation. So, you know, we do think about sort of uh, tidal volume respiratory rate as our means of controlling CO2. Think about the oxygen delivery and the PEEP for hypoxia. But you mentioned something that's important to circle back on. When you're getting these high peak pressure alarms, you are getting truncated breaths. 
So you're not delivering Correct. your full title volume and you need to be cognizant of that, of that and keep an eye on what your CO2 is doing, trying to allow for full delivery of that title volume. Correct? Yes. Very important detail. And that's all ventilators I've ever heard of. Okay. Excellent. All right. So uh, let's wrap this up. I'm going to give you the alarm uh, that happens and sort of you tell me what's going on physically and how we as physicians can fix it. How's that sound? That sounds good. I don't have to form an answer in the form of a question, right? <laughs> you do not. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Bonus so, points. <laughs> first one we mentioned, high respiratory rate. Propofol deficiency. All right. That's easy. That one's quick. Uh, remembering again that we set the minimum respiratory rate, not the maximum. The patient can drive the maximum and we're going to uh, suppress respiratory drive. When we don't think that there's a metabolic problem going on, we'll let them continue to uh, respire at the rate that their body's needing to if we're talking, you know, DKA, salicylate toxicity were the examples. All right. Certainly. And you mentioned, since we're going to add a bit to it, you mentioned propofol seems to be kind of my go-to. Yes, in the sense that often when they have a high respiratory rate, they're very agitated. So their blood pressure tends to rise. So you can hit two birds with one stone by using propofol both sedating them, dropping their respiratory rate, and reducing that blood pressure. But if they happen to be breathing quickly and you don't have a lot of blood pressure to work with, you, of course, need to go with something else, probably fentanyl. Okay, perfect. Good nuance point there. Uh, next alarm we talked about was air leak. Which is a cuff deficiency. Either it's popped a little bit or it's popped all the way. Something is wrong uh, or, or the cuff is just not sitting in the right place. But there is something wrong with the cuff. And the way to check that is to just squeeze the pilot. It should hold. Okay. And if it's not, we have to consider doing an exchange. Yeah. And you can try to get by. Usually when this happens, it's immediately after. Maybe there's something else going on. I usually will try to put another five or 10 cc's of, of air into it. And then within a few minutes or honestly seconds, if it's really popped, it just goes away. But if you're tight on time, you can usually buy yourself a little bit. And that also gives you an opportunity to... If you put a little bit of extra air into it, it'll tell you quickly whether it's just some sort of tracheolacia or some anatomical issue. Just be sure if you add more air into that, you have to get a manometer that RT should have. Maybe they, whether or not they have it in the ED depends on your ED, but for sure in the ICU, they should have a manometer. And the manometer even has all the red and green. You don't have to worry about the numbers. It'll tell you just look at the manometer. I don't okay. want to for you with those details. Yeah, I mean, a, a brand that's commonly thrown out there is a posy cuffolator. What are you trying to uh, watch for in terms of your, your high pressure on your, your balloon? Yeah, so if you are, are trying to put more air in there, uh, you don't want to overinflate because eventually it can cause some necrosis of the mucosa there. For a little while in the ED, it's not a big deal, but you want to be careful. Sure. Any specific number that you throw out for people, or is it uh, case-specific? Around 30. 30. Okay. We did a high respiratory rate. We did air leak. So now we have high peak pressure and a normal plateau pressure. Right. So these are going to be your increased resistance problems. And I'm labeling this an alarm deficiency because it's not telling you what the real problem is. Except, of course, you have to worry about the decreased tidal volume that's going in. So the increased resistance category includes things like the circuit blockage, a kink, including something in the ET tube, the patient biting down on it, a mucus plug, a blood clot in the bronchus or the bronchiole, or bronchospasm, like in the asthmatic example we had. That's a high peak pressure, normal plateau. The alarm's just going off doing its thing for something that's not 
necessarily in and of itself a problem, but you have to address so that you get your full title volume. Excellent. And then the last one we talked about was high peak pressure with a high plateau pressure. And this is a problem, right? This is an actual pathophysiologic problem of the lungs. So you're talking tension pneumothorax, breath stacking, could be really bad air. Yes, could be as simple as a main stem intubation. I wish the many times that I've seen these that was the problem because it's a very simple fix. But if you're looking at bad ARDS, if you're looking at breath stacking, you're you're in for a heap of hurt. So really pay attention to those high peak pressure, high plateau. Prepare yourself to spend a while by the bedside to work that through. Fantastic. And so to hit these really quick at high level for us as a wrap-up, um, people keep this in mind. Our four alarms we talked about, high respiratory rate, we're going to call that an acute propofol deficiency, so long as it's not a metabolic acidosis, air leak as a cuff deficiency, high peak pressure normal plateau is an alarm deficiency, or think about a uh, Kelly being clamped on something in the circuit, uh, high peak pressure, high plateau pressure is a compliance problem and a pathophysiology that you have to really dive into. How's that sound? That's pretty good. One out of four is a real big problem. Yeah, yes, one out of four is a big problem. Uh, beware the, be aware and fear the asthmatic. Be ready for your breath sacking. Think about your pneumothorax and aggressively treat those patients. They should certainly be using the full kitchen sink, including epinephrine. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today to sort of break down these common vent alarms. I feel more prepared for managing the vents. I hope our listeners gained a lot from it because I certainly did. It was my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation.